Well, good evening and welcome as we resume our study in uh, dealing with depression, anxiety, and fear with the power of the gospel. And so, Wes, uh, we have an opportunity to discuss this again, and I'm excited about what we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's going to be a good evening. You know, we were talking earlier today uh, just about all that's going on in our world, and even today it's a little rainy and gray outside. I was just thinking, man, this is it's a fitting moment. Uh, but as you thought about this topic, and as we've talked about things that would be beneficial to discuss mm. as we care for one another in the body of Christ, how do you see this as a timely study, given everything that's going on in our world? Sure. Today? It's been a tough year 2020 we think about uh certainly COVID-19 um and there have been multiple dimensions Mm -hmm. to that challenge uh one of them obviously simply health and the fact that there's no cure uh as yet and the fact that asymptomatic people can be carriers so you're never quite sure um the fact that it's it's pulsated, it's come and not really gone, but seemed like it was on the wane and then it comes again like in a surge and that's challenging. And then there's the whole economic side as society is set, as shut down, biz, small businesses, some of them have, have ended. Uh, people have become unemployed as a result. So there's all kinds of things. And then we've had obviously a very difficult summer in race relations with the George Floyd um, death and then demonstrations that followed and a lot of the uh, anxiety and stress and, and distress over uh, society, the role of police, the role of government. Um, Christians are asking questions about that. So this, the future seems challenging and uh, definitely a time we're not really discussing anxiety and fear tonight, but I'm certain that there are many people that feel anxious, that feel fearful, and that the Bible addresses anxiety and fear and tells us uh, how we should, by our faith, be able to conquer um, aspects of anxiety and fear and, and how we should fear the Lord. So that we're not talking about those things tonight, but we're zeroing in on depression. And, and uh, for some people, uh, these events can press in on them, on their hearts and on their souls so much that they get into a tailspin, tailspin and they can become very dark in their minds and, and, and their hope is gone and they become depressed. And we've been talking about it for a number of weeks. Yeah. So tonight we're going to zero in on a particular aspect of that. What are we going to look at as we discuss these things tonight? So I've been following a couple of books Uh, tonight. uh, We're leaning mostly on Edward T. Welch's book, Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness. I've also leaned on Martin Lloyd-Jones's work, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. Mm -hmm. So those are some different resources, but obviously the most important are the scriptures. And we're looking at chapters in Welsh's book, which have single word titles, uh, zeroing on key aspects of depression. And uh, the three chapters we're looking at tonight are entitled Remember, Purpose, and Persevere. So we're looking at the role of memory or remembrance, and then uh, the issue of purpose in the Christian life and the loss of purpose that depressed people feel. Mm and then the need for perseverance. So those are the general topics tonight. So under that first heading, under this idea of remembering or memory, Mm -hmm. uh, let's start by uh, or addressing why remembering is such a vital aspect of defeating depression. Yeah, I think the basic concept here is the timeless, unchanging, encouraging, hope-giving truths about God, about Christ, about the gospel coming from scripture never change. They haven't changed. And so we can forget them in the midst of depression. Mm. And uh, Welsh uses a, a kind of a fun analogy uh, of, of 
mystifying a really little child by showing the child something and then suddenly hiding it behind their back. And they, they're, they're mystified. They don't know where it's gone. And then, lo and behold, presto, you bring it out and there it is. And they're amazed. But as the kid gets older, they look behind your back. They know what you're doing and they're on it. They're tracking it. Mm. And he said, it's interesting how we can come to a very sweet disposition of mind and heart in circumstances such as a really good worship service, um, you know, some good songs, hymns, spiritual songs, and then follow that by a really encouraging sermon. And you get to a really good place where you feel good mm. about your walk with Christ, about your future, you feel with hope. And then within six hours or less, a set of circumstances has drained all that away. It's almost like the thing's there in front of you and then it's been hidden behind the back. What happened? Well, those are times to remember. Those are times to remember. We tend to forget in the dark what we learned in the light. And the Lord, I think, orchestrates circumstances that seem dark to us to get us to remember uh, what we learned in the light. And especially given theologically that God is immutable. Um, we need to learn to say to ourselves, God is every bit as loving, wise, and powerful. Those are the three attributes that we tend to question when we're suffering. He's every bit as loving, wise, and powerful as every was the last time I felt good about God or about my life. He hasn't changed at all. So we need to say those kinds of things to ourselves. And again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of his regular therapies here is you need to learn to preach to yourself. Don't just listen to yourself. But like the psalmist in Psalm 42, 43, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Um, so the idea here is you need to take those timeless truths and speak them to yourself in the, in the midst of the darkness. So that's all about remembering. It's about remembering what you, what you knew and know is true. Yeah. I love that phrase. You just used timeless truth mm -hmm. uh, and, and taking that as Christians in what ways is forgetting such a big problem for us? It is. It's, uh, it's, first of all, it's very insulting to God. Mm. If you think about it that way. We are forgetting God's past actions and God's immutable character and now acting like because this is going on in my life today, this, you know, Wednesday afternoon or something like that. God is no longer wise or no longer loving, no longer um, powerful. Um, you know, that's an insult to God. You're really challenging him with being a mutable God, not an immutable God. And it's especially wrong when we charge him with wrongdoing based on our forgetfulness. The problem is not that God's doing wrong. The problem is we've forgotten who he is. Mm. Um, also, it's it's like God as a suitor has to keep winning our affections. You know, we've given him our hand in marriage, so to speak, in a covenant relationship. Now he's got to woo us again, again mm. and again. He's got to keep proving himself to us. And, um, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, a challenge. It, and also it, it makes us like little children blown and tossed, not by the waves of doctrine but blown and tossed by the waves of adverse circumstances. We end up unstable little children. So this uh, forgetting is a big problem in the Christian life. And like we mentioned, we want to root our conversations in the Word of God, in the Scripture. So how has God addressed this issue in very various places and ways in Scripture? Oh, this is actually a huge topic. Mm -hmm. God knows that we are prone to forget. Yeah. So as I was working on the answer to this question and thinking about the answer to this question, I started coming up with way more material than we could possibly use. Be the rest of our evening. Yeah, be the rest of our evening. How God knew we would forget, mm. said we would forget, and put some things in place. Mm. Let's start with the Old Covenant. 
um, you know, God ordained a cycle of festivals to remind the people of his mighty actions in the past. The clearest is the Passover. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And remember that God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember that the Red Sea uh, just parted for you and let you across on dry ground, but uh, Pharaoh and his army was destroyed. Remember that God is every bit as powerful now as ever he was then. So Passover was, you know, and even it's written in the book of Deuteronomy, in the future when your son asks you, what do, what do all of these symbols mean? You will tell him we were slaves in Egypt and you go, go over the history, etc. Or again, at the crossing of the Jordan River, when, the, when similar to the Red Sea crossing, the, the, the river separated, even though it was at flood stage, and Israel passed on dry ground. And God commanded before uh, Joshua was, uh, was allowed to let the river go back in to a flood stage, have one member of each of the 12 tribes go in and pick up a big stone from the center of the river. So they brought it out and piled up the stones on the other side of the Jordan stones from the middle of the river. And uh, Joshua 4, 6, and 7, it says, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Why? Because they'd forget because they'd forget. The Song of Moses, another example of that. He taught them a song saying what they would do once they crossed the Jordan and went into the Promised Land. They're going to forget God. They're going to start worshiping the other the gods of other nations, and God is going to bring in a Gentile nation to destroy them and evict them from the land. They'll remember the song. Songs are memorable. And so the point was memorability. Uh, also, the essence of good parenting in Deuteronomy 6 was constant reminder of God's laws. Deuteronomy 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them or sharpen them into your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses on your gates. Why all that? Because we forget. Because we forget. Then in the New Testament, I could find many other similar examples, but I knew I was running out of time. Um, New Testament, isn't the Lord's Supper established because we would forget Christ? We'd forget that he... So the Lord's Supper was established, uh, and it says in Luke twenty-two nineteen, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus didn't need to remember that he died on the cross. We do. So we tend to forget um, so, at any rate, th- this is a problem, and the Lord knew it was a problem, so he established ways by which we would not forget his word. Yeah. We have examples of people dealing with their mm-hmm. own attitudes or their own situation by remembering. So what are some passages that show right. that, right? Individuals remembering uh, things that helped them be pulled out of depression. Yeah. Again, we could, we could find lots of, lots of examples. Uh, Psalm 103 is one of the most uh, famous where it says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So again, like Psalm 42, 43, which I'll mention in a moment, the psalmist is speaking to his soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and don't you be forgetting, O soul. Since you tend to forget, yeah. don't forget. Forget what? What should we not forget? Um, forget all his benefits, such as what? Well, he forgives all your sins. Mm-hmm. Talk more about that in a minute. 
and heals all your diseases. He crowns your life with good things so that your new youth is renewed like the eagles. He says, there's all of these good things and you're forgetting. So for me, the, the day of Thanksgiving in, in November is a, is a good day to stop, even though it's really somewhat of a secular holiday. In church history, really could be seen as, as a religious holiday where the, the pilgrims gave thanks to God for their providential uh, deliverance from death and from starvation. And so for us to be able to stop and just be thankful to God for all of his past blessings to us reminds us of his goodness. But again, Psalm 42, as we've known many times in this study, uh, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. And therefore, I will remember. So the psalmist is reminding himself of God's, of his own past joy in worship and also of God's many past blessings. You know, I'm going to remember you, etc. Again, Psalm 130, which Edward Welsh focuses on in this chapter in remembering. And this is a, definitely a person struggling with depression. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So Welsh actually walks through every aspect of the, of the psalm, but he, he's doing it in the context of remembrance. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he initially really zeroes in on the remembrance of the forgiveness of your sins. I love the language of the psalm. I tell you what, it's so helpful to read through and pray through if you are struggling with depression. Just the language, even of verse 1 of that Psalm 130, out of the depths mm -hmm. I cry to you, O Lord. I mm -hmm. think... Man, we have all, at some season of our life, felt that way. And to be able to pray those words straight from Scripture back to God is really helpful. Amen. So in the midst of depression, what is the central thing that we need to remember? Is there one central thing? Um, you know, I, I as I was trying to answer that question and try to think about it, um, there's a lot of ways we could answer. But maybe let's start with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul, do you think there was a central thing? Yes. Mm. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Well, I'll give you an indication of the central thing. Mm -hmm. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So you could argue that's the one central thing you need to remember when you're depressed. Mm -hmm. Christ died for my sins. And that he was buried. And that he was raised from the dead. That's central. And Paul doubles down on that, I would think, in First uh, Corinthians 2, 2, when he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Obviously, he would add and raised from the dead as well. But uh, the whole package of his atoning work of death and resurrection, I would say that that's a central thing that we could remember. Uh, I might put it this way in more general theological terms. We should, the central thing we should remember is the love of God in the person and work of Christ, especially as he, as he has worked forgiveness of my sins, mm -hmm. the forgiveness of my sins. So if we can keep it really, really simple, the central thing you should remember as a Christian in depression is 
my sins are forgiven through Christ. Let's just start there. Yeah. You know, if we if we do meditate on that truth, I think one of the things that can rise to the surface is our sin. And so right. you might be thinking if you're feeling this way, like, okay, wait a second. If I'm thinking about forgiveness of sins, I am also kind of thinking about my sins, but yeah. how in some way might remembering our sins actually be therapeutic? Yeah, it seems counterintuitive. It's like, I'm really depressed. And now here you are reminding me of my sins. You know, like Job's friends beating him up. Mm. Well, um, I, I think it, it can be therapeutic. It depends on how it's done. Any way that the Holy Spirit does it is therapeutic. He knows exactly uh, what he's doing. I, I think this whole thing, uh, the central thing that we should remember, and then the issue of sin, uh, comes across in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And if you, if you know anything about the backdrop of that hymn, it's really quite tragic um, how um, two ships collided in the midst of the Atlantic. And one of them went down very quickly. And the man who wrote the hymn, Horatio Spafford, um, his wife uh, cabled him uh, from uh, Europe. I don't remember exactly where, maybe France or maybe the UK. And uh, the cable was just utterly heartrending. Saved alone, she cabled. Uh, their three daughters had drowned and she survived somehow, but um, they were dead. And um, it's very, very tough. And then he went over to be with her and passed over the place where the ship had gone down and wrote, it is well with my soul. And it's, it's almost jarring, the third verse. You know, the first verse uh, says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. You can imagine him looking over the railing down at the watery grave of his daughters. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So you look at that, it's like, how is that related to my sins are forgiven? Absolutely. The reason it's well with your soul is that your sins are forgiven. Then the third verse, um, my sin, oh, the bliss of this. It's like, it's shocking. It's like, why are you bringing that up? He brings it up. He's doing his own therapy. And look what he says, my sin, oh, the bliss of of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And he's doing the same thing the psalmist is doing. He's speaking to his soul, he said, you better praise the Lord, because your sins are forgiven at an infinitely high cost. The blood of Jesus was shed for you. So it is actually very therapeutic to remember your sins, they're their details and all that, but remember them in the context of forgiveness, mm. an infinitely sufficient atoning work of Jesus Christ. Just the bringing up of the, of the, of the sins, the psalmist in Psalm 130 brings it up, you know, Lord, if you could kept a record of sins, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. So he is dealing with out of the depths. He actually brings up his own, own sinfulness. Also depression is a very self, centered mindset, totally absorbed, self-absorbed. And, and it's good to get up out of yourself at that moment and say, you know, I have sinned against a holy God and he's forgiven me. Mm. That's therapeutic. Mm. Also, knowing that you would not even be aware of your sins if the Holy Spirit hadn't convicted you. So that's actually, you know, God's at work in, in my life. And then Edward Welsh puts it this way. What could be more comforting than these words? Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we're still powerless, Christ died for 
the ungodly. Mm. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So we need to remember. When we're depressed, we need to remember God, the unchanging God, his infinite love for us in sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, the great power that God showed in raising his only begotten son from the dead on the third day, and the fact that Christ did all of that, that our, that our sins might be forgiven, and that all of them are forgiven, not in part, but the whole, completely forgiven. What could be more encouraging than that? Yeah. So how then does a healthy work of remembering feed hope, which is really the remedy to depression? Yeah, so we need to remember God's track record with us. And then part of the purpose of the Bible is to give us a sense that God's been at this a while, long time. Jesus' genealogy had 75 generations. 75 generations before Jesus, from Adam to Christ. And that was 2,000 years ago. God has been saving sinners for a long time. He has a very good track record. Hope is all about the future. So for us as time-aware beings, part of being in the image of God, we're aware of past, present, future, being on a journey. Uh, so we can look back at God's track record with us, look further back at what Scripture records as his track record with the people of God, and you realize how faithful he is and how incredibly kind and good and unchanging he is, we're able then to look into the future and say, the future's bright. Based on the promises of God, based on the track record of God, God cherishes his word. He is exalted above all things, his name and his word. He has tied his name to finishing our salvation. So be of good hope. That's why. And also, I think Philippians 1, 6 helps. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah, look back at the past. He started this incredibly good work in us. He's going to finish it. Yeah, hang on to that promise. Yeah, yeah. He is going to finish he what he's going started. to finish this work. That's good. Absolutely. So that was all under the first heading of remember. Remember. And yeah. the second thing that you had mentioned was a single word title for a chapter, purpose. Why do depressed folks have a difficult time answering the question, what is your reason to live? Really, um, I think one of the most dangerous states a soul can ever get into is just just a little bit shy of, of suicide. Uh, suicide is a tremendous darkness, and, and it's the, the, the terminal stop of some people that were never able to conquer depression. Um, and I think the way they talk, it seems, what clinically you read and you hear, the way they talk in the, in the weeks and months that precede suicide is I really have no reason to live. There's no purpose to my life here on earth. No one would miss me if I were gone. I have made no difference in this world. I have nothing to live for. There's nothing I want in this world. No purpose, complete lack of purpose. And I think Satan is able to get Christians to that point. I think non-Christians, it's actually reasonable. I think that that terror of having literally no real purpose in life let us eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die that is the purpose of life if you're not a christian mm -hmm. but if you are a christian you have infinitely glorious purposes for living so this is a matter of satanic deception and he can he can work in us a feeling that 
life is meaningless. Life is purposeless. Also, he can deceive us earlier, before any of that, into building our lives on idols. Not on God and God's glory, God's name, God's kingdom, but we build it on idols. And those are material things. Um, prosperity, um, success, family, children, um, many idols. And then those idols, he, Satan, is permitted by God sometimes to knock them over and topple them over. And then the person's dragged down into depression because they don't have anything to live for now that the that this thing's been removed. But that thing was an idol. Yeah. And so that's some of, of what, you know, Welsh quoted Albert Camus, um, French philosopher, said, there come moments when our work, that activity by which we discover our worth in this world, mm. our profession, our daily labor, suddenly looks like a painted set in a theater and the set collapses. All our valuable work collapses. And with horror, we stare at the other side of material things, the spiritual deeps where we always believe meaning to be, but we see nothing, bare nothing. That's losing all purpose to life. So that is a very dangerous state uh, for a person to get to. Yeah. How would seeing a strong biblical reason for life uh, and for every single day, really, be an important step in being healed from depression? Right. Well, if that mentality that I've described seems to be the terminal stop to which that suicidal person is going, then turning around and saying, no, actually, my life does have meaning. Mm -hmm. There is purpose. There is a reason to get up out of bed. There's a reason to live every day. And that reason is strong and biblically true, and I believe in it, and I'm going to go after it today. I'm going to pursue it. That's a healthy approach to life. I think there is, there's never been a healthier statement about both life and death in such an efficient small package ever than what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You don't get a healthier view of both life and death than that. Yeah. So for me... My life, Paul says, is Christ. What does that mean? Well, he says in Philippians 3 what it means. We'll come back to it later. Mm -hmm. But to discover who Christ is and to do Christ's will and to build Christ's kingdom, that's what my life's all about. I want to do that. But boy, in the end, I want more of Christ than I'll ever get here in this world. I want to see him face to face. And I want to be with him. And I'm looking forward to dying. Not in any suicidal way. Just when he takes me out, I'll be delighted to go. So I think that's a, a having a strong biblical reason to be alive today. Hmm. Now, that's a good cure to depression. Yeah. Now, the preacher in Ecclesiastes struggled with some of these same issues. Um, seeing no lasting purpose in life. Let's, let's talk a little bit about his view and uh, maybe how we might respond to that. Oh, what a dreary book. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it just seems to address depression. Yeah. Seems to ad address a feeling of emptiness in life. Uh, vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Uh, utterly meaningless. Uh, what does man gain from uh, all his labor at which he toils under the sun? What do you get out of it? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises again. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, but the sea's never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. Now that's, that sounds like depression. And then later in that same chapter, Ecclesiastes 1.14, I've seen all things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless. 
A Chasing After the Wind. So that's a book for ruminating around in life under the sun, he calls it, and he really calls it Vanity of Vanities. I remember we taught a BFL on this book here. I remember each week kind of coming away going, man, that's rough, you know? And, like you and, want to put an arm around him. Right. It's like, wow. Yeah, and so honestly, you know, we read the Psalms and we're comforted by that language, but you can almost, you can almost read Ecclesiastes and think, this is kind of dark. How, yeah. how did the Holy Spirit, why did the Holy Spirit inspire this? Honestly, in the book, how, how does the preacher of Ecclesiastes resolve it in his, in his mind? In his word, uh, he, he ends with this, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Yeah. The verse that follows that is God's going to bring everything into judgment. Now, for me as a Christian, I think there must be a better answer than that. Fear God and keep the law. So I think God gave to the preacher, who we believe is Solomon, a limited perspective mm. and gave to Christ and to his apostles a better answer than that, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I think it is a better answer. I remember when you shared this with me, I was like, man, what a connection to make. Because he's been talking about yeah. the meaningless Vanity. nature of things, vanity, mm-hmm. everything being worthless. Yeah. So what would that better answer be? If we're to answer the, right. the preacher, if we're to answer Solomon, how might we respond as well? Let's, let's click back into what we had earlier. The best single thing you can remember mm. is God's love for us in Christ for the salvation of our souls. Well, the finish line of that salvation is the resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest exegetical uh, theological treatment of the bodily resurrection. Resurrection of the body for us Christians. Mm. Christ the first fruit, we the rest of the harvest. Mm. And so that whole chapter which celebrates where, oh, death is your sting and all of that. That's that's just this awesome celebration of a future world that's coming. Mm. That's infinitely bright. And we are going to be in resurrection bodies. Bodies that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. That's the world we're going to. So if that's where we're going because Christ is risen from the dead, then the ethical application at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is better than the preacher's conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. It is this. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not vanity. It's not meaningless. It's not in vain. It's not going to be dust in the wind. So what I think is going on with Ecclesiastes is the under the sun is code language for on planet Earth if there really is no resurrection from the dead. Mm -hmm. Then life really is meaningless. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, Life is not meaningless. Mm. And so the resurrection from the dead gives us power and energy and purpose to live life today. Mm. doesn't make us suicidal so we can run and go be in heaven. That's not our, our call. That's up to God when we get to do that. Paul wasn't suicidal. Yeah. Paul was, was, for himself, he'd rather die. But for the people he loved, he'd rather stay alive. He was not suicidal at all. He was eager for life, but even more eager to be with Christ. Yeah. So what I would say is... The way that the New Testament has a better answer is Christ is risen. The future world is glorious. The things we do now affect that future world. So let's do them. Yeah. It's a healthy way of looking at life. That's really helpful. What are some examples of maybe other purpose statements as in like this is why I am alive in the New Testament? Why am I alive? What does the Bible say? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's go with the uh, preacher, Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, what are his commandments? Jesus summarized them like this. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is like it, love your neighbors yourself. Really, once you have been justified, not by law, but by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit brings you back to the law and says, now do this. Jesus would say, do that for the rest of your life. Fear God and keep his commandments, said the preacher. Jesus says, right? Love God with every fiber of your being, every moment of your life, by the power of the Spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that the rest of your life. What better purpose could be, there be than that? Mm-hmm. Or here's some other ones. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean to do it in the name of Jesus? Do it according to his pattern. Do it for his reputation. Do it to advance his kingdom. Whatever you do, do it for Christ. Or again, 1 Corinthians 10.31, similar. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Put God on display. Radiantly put him on display. That's something to live for. Or Paul put it this way, Acts 20.24, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So he's, my job is to proclaim the gospel so that people can be saved. So those are some purpose statements. We could find many others. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is essentially just some statements or questions, rather, with answers that are statements of theological truths, um, asks this question, what is the chief end of man? Which seems like a relevant question for us. How does it answer that question? Right, end means purpose. What is the chief reason we exist, the, the reason why we're created, the reason we continue to draw breath on planet Earth? Uh, What is it? The chief end, the highest ultimate purpose. Their answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we already got that with glorify God, but also that we would enjoy him. Uh, That's what love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means. It's like, I'm so attracted to God. I enjoy God. I want to be with him. He brings me pleasure and delight. He is what satisfies my soul. Mm So John Piper got desiring God out of combining the halves uh, when he said, you know, he left, he said that the Westminster Divines kind of left it unresolved how those two things relate to each other. Although he said the singular end means he saw, they saw it as the same thing. But the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The most glory or God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So, be satisfied in God today. Get up out of a bed of depression, out of a, a dark tunnel, a dark bottom of the staircase, and come up into the light of the glory of God. Um, drink in his glory. Study his glory that's external to you in nature and in other people and in history. And then glorify God yourself. Put him on display. That's uh, what we're here for. So I love that. So far, if you're writing these things down, there's a lot of great things here. If you need to circle back and get some of these back. But I think... You know, love God, mm-hmm. love your neighbor, right. glorify God. Sure. How could our purpose statement, if we were to think through our own, how could it get boiled down to the person of Christ or yeah. to know Christ and make him known something? Know Christ, yeah. Christ is everything. And so you know, the Father would be fine with us focusing completely on Christ to answer mm-hmm. life's questions. That's why he came. But no one does this better than Paul. And nowhere does he do it better than Philippians chapter 3. You know, how he talks about his spiritual resume as a Jew and how he had all this. But whatever it was to my prophet, I consider loss 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward what lies ahead. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have achieved it, but I press on to know Christ. And so Paul zeroes in on this, the quest to know Christ and to be conformed to him, even at the cost of suffering, that in the end he might be resurrected in Christ-like glory. That's what his life was all about. Um, Philippians 3 may be one of the single greatest purpose statements for life, and it zeroes in absolutely on Christ. And you could say, well, I know Jesus. Like, listen. Paul said in Colossians, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You you barely know Christ. You'll spend eternity learning Christ. So uh, it's powerful. You think about Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos before revelation happened, before the revelation came to him. And you would ask him, Did, do you know Christ? He would say, I know him. At the end of Revelation, after he's seen Christ, the Ancient of Days, and he received the scroll, and he breaks it open, and it's like, I know him better now. Yeah. There's infinitely more to know about Jesus. Mm. How can the two journeys maybe also be an answer to this question of, of purpose for us? Well, that's really why I wrote um, An Infinite Journey, and the two journeys, which is the name of the ministry that has my teachings, my writings, my, you know, all that is called two journeys. The two journeys are the, the internal journey of personal holiness, sanctification, growth in Christ likeness, becoming more and more like Jesus, being conformed to Christ, like Paul says in mm-hmm. Philippians 3. And then the external journey of gospel advance, where Paul says in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I preach the gospel uh, and lead others to Christ. So the combination of internal growth in holiness and godliness, conforming to Christ, and externally ministering to others, both Christians, but external journey tends to think mostly about, um, about the lost, seeing lost people come to faith in Christ. But I think it's okay to look at both, both Christians to help them with their sanctification and non-Christians to bring them to justification and then sanctification. Um, those two journeys really are one and the same journey in the end. That is a great reason to live a purpose in life. So as we wrap up this section on purpose, uh, there's a statement uh, by C.S. Lewis uh, in the Screwtape Letters. And we want to keep in mind that the book is written basically as a, a photographic negative, right? In the style of a senior demon named right. Screwtape instructing a junior demon yeah. named Wormwood how to tempt a human being to sin. So really interesting work. And, and yeah. Lewis did a really incredible job in the way that he crafted this. But this is the statement. Uh, Screwtape, so the senior demon mm-hmm. instructing Worm would warns him he says our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemies god's will Mm -hmm. looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys all right so all right you just have to just take it out of the 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 
uh, format by which it's written and turn it around to get at what Lewis is saying. Mm -hmm. Lewis is saying is God is most glorified in us when we are pushed to the edge of despair mm -hmm. by looking around and seeing really nothing left of God's goodness in this world and still we choose to obey him. So that's really a Job situation. I mean, what did Job look at that was beautiful? Did he enjoy a beautiful sunrise as he's sitting in the ashes with his body festering and, and all that, all of his children dead, everything he owned taken away abruptly, as it seems a clear message from God, his wife saying, curse God and die. It's like there's not, nothing beautiful left. But he said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. So what Wormwood is, or what Screwtape is saying to Wormwood is like, we're in deep trouble when a person says that. So when you are pushed to the edge in depression, discouragement, and you resolve to do God's will and to not sin and to not f fly off into wickedness, but to continue to obey him and ask him to lead you up out of that darkness, that's actually very glorifying to God. And it's rooted in purpose and leads well into this final section on perseverance sure. thinking about what we must do uh why is perseverance so vital in our battle with depression right well we talked last week uh, about suffering and so you have to persevere in suffering perseverance just endurance uh, macrothumia long suffering we're not going to give up at the first suffering we're going to keep going here so satan is constantly tempting us to keep going or, or to give up um and so the ultimate giving up is suicide um, but just, I just want to give up. I don't care anymore about anything. And so people do little miniature giving ups before they do the ultimate one of suicide. But they, they pull back in relationships. They quit things. They stop doing things. They just give up. They don't persevere. Stop going to church. Stop reading the Bible. They stop doing things. And Satan's just winning at that point when he, he causes us to give up. And I think sometimes the best thing we can do in the midst of depression is to determine to just keep doing what you know is right, even though you don't feel like doing that. You're going to still get up at a certain time. You're going to still have your quiet time. You're going to still read the Bible and pray just as long as you did before, though it doesn't feel like much. You're going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You're going to keep going. That's perseverance. You know, you're going to keep doing the right thing that you don't feel, though you don't feel much. So that's our perseverance as humans. How does God persevere with us as sinners? Yeah, it's like God is saying, you know, we're all in this together. This was a long, sad 6,000-year journey down the road that Adam asked for and sought, which is an education in evil. Mm. And we're all enduring this. So God himself is displayed as patiently enduring. So, for example, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Paul says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So Saul of Tarsus shredding Christ's church who later would write these words. Paul would write these words. If anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. Yes, but he didn't destroy you, Saul, did he? No, he didn't. Wow. Could have. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Go to hell. Literally. Dead 
hell, done. He didn't do that. Saved him. And you think about, all right, the weeks and months and years that preceded that. Patience on the part of Christ. Patience. And he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. He was goading him to come to Christ, pushing him to come to Christ. He put some things in there with Stephen's arguments from Scripture. Wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. That was God being patient with Paul. Wow. Very patient. And again, we see the same thing in uh, Paul wrote in Romans 10, 21 concerning Israel, the Jews. All day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So God is a very patient being. So we're all in this together. Sin is evil. It stinks. It produces suffering and brokenness and disease and sadness. And we have to endure. We have to persevere. You mentioned a moment ago how uh, in those moments of depression, some some ways that we need to show perseverance in daily life, really just to to get up and and press on. You know, you think about, like you mentioned, a daily quiet time, maybe a consistent time to wake up. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, a consistent time of going to bed. There are, just, there are aspects of our lives that we can we yeah. can take steps to persevere. And are there other practical things as you think about perseverance? Oh, that's a good list. Oh, yeah. That's a good list. I mean, you just have to keep living life. Uh, Puritans would say walk according to rule. Mm. So rule is just disciplines. There's certain things I'm not going to stop doing. I'm going to keep my house clean, tidy. Uh, I'm not going to become a, a hoarder. I'm not going to be so depressed and lazy that I just let dishes pile up in the sink and stuff stay in the refrigerator weeks on end and not wash you know, my clothes or do personal hygiene. I'm going to live my life. Yeah. And at some point, God's going to bring me out of this sadness. But right now, I'm going to just put one foot in front of it, uh, the other. That's a great image. One foot in front of the other. Yeah. What's the relationship then between perseverance and suffering? James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Mm. And perseverance must finish its work. What is perseverance's work? That you may mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's sanctification language. Perseverance is essential to our sanctification. Mm. A simple, homely analogy is, I look on us sometimes like baked goods, uh, like muffins, uh, blueberry muffins. And it's uh, 350 degrees for 24 minutes. You can't take them out after six minutes. You can't, can't take them out. You, yeah, they're, 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 they're pudding, all right? And, and you take them out after 21 or 22 minutes, and I don't know, different times in your oven, but you need toothpicks. So what are the toothpicks for? Stick them in and see what's... Pull them out, and if you still have some wet batter in there, what do you do? Back in the oven. Back in the You're oven. Not done. You're not done. And that's where perseverance comes in. Sometimes God has to put you back in the oven of suffering. Chronic illness, mm. problems with a, a grown child, you know, who's not walking with the Lord, difficulties in the marriage, sin nature issues, struggles, mm. back in the oven. God is still working on you. Yeah. Still working. As we think of this in the, the, the scheme of the spiritual realm, right, spiritual warfare that's going on, I, I think the, the imagery of, uh, soldiers is really helpful. I yeah. think back of images that you've seen of like long marches yeah. in muddy conditions and just the perseverance that it takes to win a war. It's yeah. not a quick thing or an easy fix and it's not something that you just walk over that one hill. It's a right. long endurance in a particular it direction. Is. It is. And I think it's helpful for us to have maybe even those kind of images in our mind. It is. Well. We're at war. Satan, the world of flesh and the devil are fighting us. There's a journey of our own sanctification that we're mm-hmm. going through. There's a journey of the overall redemptive history that we're going through that requires um, perseverance. And, you know, uh, the alternative is to die. Mm-hmm. And I mean ultimate death, like death and hell and all that. And, you know, like Ro- Romans eight thirteen says that if we 
live according to the flesh, we will die. Mm. But if according to the, if by the power of the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we'll live. Life or death. And these are eternal. It's not. It's heaven or hell. So we've got to keep fighting. I, I picture, you know, soldiers in, in Vietnam in a, in a, in a uh, foxhole or something like that, firefight. And the thing goes on for 31 hours. And at some point, the soldiers are beyond exhaustion. And you can imagine them saying, all right, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. Throw down the weapon, stand up and walk off. What's gonna happen? Killed. You get killed yeah. immediately. And so, you know, for me, that's not gonna happen to us. We're not going to die, but we've got to keep fighting. Yeah. We're soldiers again, we gotta keep fighting. Yeah. Andy, maybe as a final thought, and then if you would pray for us, yeah. what do we need to keep telling ourselves yeah. as we persevere, as we fight against depression? We're going to win. Christ is going to win. This is not a losing battle, hmm. right? So morale is huge. Yeah. So Romans 5, 3-5, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering develops perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, hmm. right? So in other words, the thing you hope for, which is heaven, conforming to Christ, you're going to get. And not just you, but all the elect chosen before the foundation of the world, they will all of them be saved. The two journeys will end up in success. So keep fighting. Let's close it, Brett. One, one more thing before yeah. you pray. Um, the next few weeks may look a little bit different. Sure. Uh, anything that you want to share about that? And then yeah. Uh, so for a couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to be working on my book, uh, Sabbatical Break, and um, more of that's going to come in the fall. Let the church know more about that uh, coming. But um, So I would just advise that you look at Edward T. Welch's book on, mm -hmm. on depression and read it for yourselves. You can um, get smaller pamphlets that he's written on this also martin lloyd jones book on spiritual um depression is very helpful so that's great all right thanks so lord thank you for this time that we've had to study thank you for wes uh my friend my brother and for the conversation we've had i pray it would be helpful to your people as they study and learn and fight depression with the power of the gospel in jesus name amen thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.